I wake up from a phone call and rush to work. I sign a new contract for every shift. I work for a very low hourly wage with the promise of huge tips that fail to materialize. I try to figure out where to go in yet another area of anonymous suburban office buildings. I see workplaces in every part of the city. I observe the routines. They're almost the same everywhere. The key is to pay attention to the details. I don't remember all the people I worked with this week. I learned to pretend I like the job and I want to stay on. I learned to give as short notice as possible when I finally quit. I learned to not take pride in my work. Welcome to today's show on precarity and on being an active subject. The Radical Flu by Rose Hammer. A radio play in eight parts, produced in collaboration with Nortam and Radio Rakil, the world's oldest feminist radio station. The Radical Flu, part five. Eat the rich. The Radical Flu is a radio play by Rose Hammer and part of the Rose Hammers National Episode Series. Characters. Unnamed kitchen worker. Unnamed waiter. Prime Minister Gunnar Knutsen and Amburtius Lindvig, businessman and former banker. And there are, as well, some uninvited guests. One is the Spanish flu. The other, male chauvinism. But in the end, love and socialism wins. The Radical Flu has been commissioned by Oslo Biennale with the kind support of Kufkiu. It is high summer in Christiania, the capital city of Norway. The year is 1918. In Fri the Masonic Grand Lodge. The kitchen is operating at full steam, serving a lavish banquet dinner for 180 wealthy guests. The staff have been on their feet all evening, catering to the exclusively male party. An unnamed kitchen worker is preparing the dessert. <coughs> Jesus Christ, cover your mouth. You're coughing all over the caramel pudding. What's wrong with you? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. Please don't tell the manager. He's just waiting for an excuse to fire me. This is my first day job in years. I can't afford to. <laughs> no, no, come, come down. What do you take me for? I'd never tell on a co-worker. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's really kind. Luckily, it was only this one tray. There's more pudding over there, on the counter. Give me a minute and I will prepare some bowls. Nah, you know what? Don't bother. Those fat guts in there deserve a little extra garnish on their dessert. Let's keep the leftovers for ourselves. We can split it between the kitchen staff and the waiters when the shift is over. Should be a couple of spoonfuls each by the looks of it. Sounds like a sweet deal. <laughs> but, but please, do us all a favor and stay at home next time you're in that condition. You never know, it could be tuberculosis. Don't say it. 
That damned scourge, sweet lord in heaven, now let it be a case of the common cold. Or a Spanish flu. A Spanish what? The Spanish influenza. Haven't you heard? It's all over in the news. Here, I will show you. See, in after poster on the first page. In Paris, the disease appears as early as May, then spread to Spain and has now returned to France. According to the Daily Mail, there is currently a full-blown epidemic in Paris of the disease the French call the Spanish flu. The Pasteur Institute believes that the epidemic originated at the front. At the front? Ha! As if the soldiers haven't suffered enough. And also in London, the new epidemic has attacked countless people and the hospitals are crowded with flu patients. Among the victims are several doctors. Oh my! However, the disease currently seems to be most prevalent in Germany, where low food supplies and a shortage of doctors make it difficult to combat the epidemic. It has particularly affected workers and office clerks who have suddenly become ill with fever and severe headaches. Wow, quite serious stuff then. Germany, Britain, France, all those places are far away. What does it have to do with us? Hold on. I'm getting to it. After Boston has this morning had a conversation with city physicist Benson, who said that in recent days, and especially yesterday, there has been a significant increase in cases in Christiania. In a single business, more than 20 people had been attacked and the bank had to send several of its officials home. And this is the illness you hope you contracted? Well, I wouldn't say hoping, but listen to this. The disease itself is not dangerous under normal conditions. You will be well again within a few days or at most a week. And here, at the very end. By the way, the Spanish sickness is not the new disease. We have already, during the great flu epidemic in the early 90s, become acquainted with it in our own country. At that time, not many people were attacked, and no deaths as the direct results of the disease occurred. Let me see that. Hey, you skipped this part. For all those affected, it is important that they consult a doctor as soon as possible and follow his instructions exactly. The slightest carelessness can have fatal consequences. So promise me you'll have that cough checked out, okay? You're a member of the union, right? They'll provide sick pay and deal with the manager if necessary. I'd love to see a doctor if I could only afford it. The sickness insurance law the government is so darn proud of is of no help if you fall behind on your payments. And the union? Women are allowed into the restaurant's workers' union. Remember? Oh, that's right. Sorry, I forgot. Well, at least take a little break. Go and have a seat out on the balcony. The air will do you good. Are you sure I won't get in trouble? Positive. I'll cover for you. The dinner party ain't going nowhere. The speeches in there are dragging on endlessly. This way, I'll walk you out.
Remind me again, who are we serving tonight? Christiania Shipowners Association. They're throwing a banquet for their cronies from out of town. Surprisingly somber mood though. They've hardly touched the champagne. Look, it's Gunnar Knudsen. The Prime Minister? What's he doing here? Ha! Huh. For a self-proclaimed socialist revolutionary, I have to say, you're not very well educated in domestic politics. Don't you know that the Prime Minister is a big-time shipping magnet? Or, I suppose, it's been more of a sidekick since he became head of the government. But as you can tell from his waistline, the man sure ain't starving. Hum. Friends, distinguished colleagues, in response to the views expressed by our previous speaker, I regret to say that I belong to those who look pessimistically upon the future of shipping after the war. Sadly, I do not believe that the current boom will last when peace arrives. My experience as an old ship owner tells me that after a boom, there will come an extraordinary downturn. It may occur sooner than expected, and shipping rates will then be lower than ever before. It is therefore crucial that we, ship owners, are prepared and equipped to face the competition. That scumbag! I can't listen to this bullshit! We must Let's get out of here before I blow my temper and give him a piece of, of my mind. Well, he really rubbed you in the wrong way. That smug piece of shit lamenting the prospect of peace because him and his robber baron bodies may lose a contract or two. Such utter disregard for human life, it's a disgrace. Well, he did manage to keep Norway out of the war. What? So he could line his own pockets and feast on caviar while his normal people go to bed hungry every night because of the food rationing? Yeah, give the man the fucking Nobel Peace Prize. What I mean is that we haven't seen many of ours dying at the Western Front. Isn't that a good thing? If it wasn't for Gunnar Knudsen and his kind, there would be no war in the first place. We all know who profits from the carnage. Industrialists, bankers, stockbrokers, that's who. Going on four years now, millions and millions of working class boys slaughtered. For what? So their comrades at home can continue living like animals? What about king and country? Defending the honor of nations and empires? The Allied foot soldiers have more in common with their so-called enemies, who are also used as cannon fodder, than with their own superiors. Karl Marx said it, in bourgeois society the workers have no fatherland. And by the way, it's not true that there haven't been any casualties among our countrymen. Who do you think man the Norwegian vessels that have been supplying the Allied war machine? Sailors? Exactly. Norwegian sailors. Regular workers like you and me, earning measly salaries while putting their lives on the line to increase the wealth of the upper crust. My sister's husband is... was... one of those unfortunate devils. Went down in the English canal last year, torpedoed by a German submarine. I'm so sad to hear. 
So now my sister's on her own. A widow with eight kids to feed. Can hardly make ends meet. I try to help out as best I can, but you know, things are hard for me too. Aren't there pensions for war widows? Financial aid? Ha, so they say. But so far my sister haven't seen a penny. Just a letter of condolence, thanking her dead husband for his service, commending him for his bravery. Meanwhile, the shipping company collected a handsome sum of insurance money for their material losses. I bet the owner of the ship is in that dining hall right now, contemplating important matters, like whether or not he's got room for dessert after he stuffed his face with three servings of lobster. Makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah, but what can you do? Some are born with silver spoons in their mouths, and others have to work for their daily bread. It may not be ideal, but the Lord never gives anyone a heavier burden than they can bear. Simple folks, like you and I, who were dealt a bad hand, have no choice but to suck it up. Dealt a bad hand? Like our parents, and our grandparents before them. Oh no, that game was rigged from the beginning. But we're not gonna play the rotten game for much longer. Things will change any day now. We're gonna rewrite the old rules, distributing the cards fairly for the first time in history. Come again? Who's going to change history? You? Me. You. All working men and women of the world. In Russia they've already begun. The workers, soldiers and farmers have overthrown the Tsar, taken control of the means of production and abolished the entire system of oppression. That's... <coughs> oh, let's get you out on the balcony. It's probably a bit chilly at this time of night. Grab one of the coats from the rack. No one will notice. You're right. It's a bit windy. That's the wind of revolution blowing from the east. All across Europe the downtrodden masses are rising from their slumber. Even here in Norway the Labour Party has finally come around. At their convention just a few months ago they took an irrefutable stance in favour of the revolutionary line. Watch out capitalist pigs! Haha! <laughs> Calm down you fool. Someone might hear you. How could you say such things? We're only a stone thrown away from the parliament building. The throwing of stones will be the least of their worries when the proletariat take to the streets. We're gonna tear the stinking parliament and all the corrupt institutions down and build a new just society in their place. We're gonna put the exploiters up against the wall and... and... Oh... Oh, you men. Always with your violence. Well... Working in the kitchen, you should know that you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. But don't worry about the violence. I'll protect you. Oh, my own revolutionary hero. How romantic. Yes, I'll be your Lenin. Or your Trotsky. Or we can fight together, like they do in the Red Army. Women and men, shoulder to shoulder. Just picture it. You and I, on the barricades all day. 
And at night? What will we do at night? We'll do something that none of us could even dare to dream about before. We'll do as we damn well please, as liberated human beings. The future is ours! Ha! Oh, you big goofball. We'll see what destiny has in store. But now, my ball, Trotsky, it sounds like the Prime Minister is done speaking, meaning it's time for dessert. So, in the immediate future, I'm afraid you will have to go back inside and serve some caramel pudding to our distinguished capitalist pigs. Yeah, yeah, joke all you want. But you're right, I should go. I'll add an extra topping of spit on Gunnar Knudsen's portion though, with my compliments. Enjoy your break. See you in a bit. The unnamed kitchen worker sits huddled in a darkened corner of a balcony at the Masonic Grand Lodge in Christiania, wrapped in a borrowed coat to keep warm. Unaware of her presence, two ageing men enter, sporting grey moustaches and matching gala attire. It is Gunnar Knudsen, 69, a shipowner, industrialist and the undisputed leader of the Liberal Party, currently serving his second term as Prime Minister of Norway. Accompanying Knudsen is Amborgius Lindvig, 62, a fellow shipowner, businessman and former banker, who served as Minister of Commerce from 1912 to 13. Knudsen and Lindvig have both delivered speeches and eaten good food of all kinds at this evening's banquet. Cigar. Hmm. Havana. And what else? My doctor tells me to cut down on the smoking. But uh, why not? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Prime Minister, the... Yes? The gloomy predictions in your speech, weren't they a bit um, alarmist? I have to say you startled more than a few of us with your talk of a sudden downturn when the war ends. I'm afraid I was brutally honest, my dear Lindvig. You know me. I'm a straight shooter. I say it like it is. But um, restructuring our businesses for a peacetime economy, it won't be done overnight. Not everyone will have the time to adapt. It could be a bloodbath. A bloodbath? Yes, figuratively speaking. On the stock market. That may be so, but you know what the good book says. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. <sighs> Amen. Amen indeed. So, you see, it's not my intention to be a wet blanket. We've had four prosperous years, very prosperous for some, including yourself. Now it is time for each and every one of us to show moderation and make sacrifices. I'm already leading by example. 
Instead of throwing away my shirts when they begin showing signs of wear, I send them to London to be mended by my tailor on Savile Row. Mm, impressive. And you? If the going gets tough, you can always rent out a couple of rooms in your new villa at Big Doy. <coughs> they say it's the most beautiful property in town. Shouldn't be difficult to find tenants. Excuse me, what? <laughs> I'm only pulling your leg, Lindig. <laughs> oh, yes, of course you are. <laughs> but in all seriousness, <clears throat> profits will return to those who exercise patience and wisdom. If they manage to keep the fighting in Europe going for another 12 months or so, there should be ample time to modernize our fleet, get our affairs in order, and prepare for whatever comes next. Whatever comes next? Hmm. It's getting harder and harder to tell these days. Bolshevism. It's spreading, you know. In Germany, a position against the war is growing thanks to communist agitation. If they came into power... God help us all. We already had the uprising in Finland, literally on our doorstep. Which is precisely why I'm not the least bit concerned. The Finnish government demonstrated in a most admirable manner how to deal with revolutionaries. Swift action, resolute force, problem solved. Hmm. Do you think it will come to that here in Norway? It won't. And I'll tell you why. In February, a covert security committee was established at my explicit orders to monitor any potential troublemakers among the lower classes. Tranmel, Grep, whatever they're called, can let out a fart without my men knowing about it. Ah, uh, bravo! And if they were to attempt any monkey business, special divisions of the army stand ready to ruthlessly strike down even the smallest attempt at subversion. This is very reassuring news, Prime Minister. I'll sleep a little better from now on. What? Did you think I'd turn a blind eye and let a pack of delinquents threaten our precious nation? Oh no, Lindvig. Leading a country is not very different from being a captain on board a ship. One has to remain steadfast and vigilant at all times. Yes, and stamp out signs of mutiny at the earliest stage. <clears throat> but mm, with all due respect, now that the Labour Party has shown their true revolutionary colors, wouldn't it be better to round them up right away, instead of letting them run for election this fall? Ah, uh, uh, don't insult me. Do you honestly believe that Labour has the slightest chance against me? And my party? Pardon me for saying so, but this is the reason why you didn't last long in national politics. You're missing the point, completely. We want socialists as members of parliament, social democrats, that is. There is no better way to domesticate scoundrel revolutionaries than to invite them into the halls of power and let them believe they have a say. Same with women. Why do you think I granted females the right to vote in 1913? Keeping your friends close, but your enemies closer? Mm, yes. I suppose you could put it like that. 
socialists, women, plebeians. You know as well as I that we are not dealing with the brightest of creatures. But all the more easy to please. They look at us, see our nice houses and our fancy automobiles, and they want a taste of what we are having. So why not throw them a bone every once in a while? The occasional handout and some bread and circus is enough to shut them up and leave the real decision-making to us. So, you're probably not too thrilled about the liquor ban, then? Well, I'll admit that booze was a convenient tool to pacify the commoners, a point no doubt lost on our peers in the Conservative Party, who want to make it legal again. Still, I view it as a part of my job to act as a responsible father when the children get unruly. Sometimes you simply have to put your foot down. Spoken like a proper Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Too many people are misled by my vigorous appearance, Lindvik. Because of my confrontational style, they take me for a cold-hearted brute. But contrary to what some like to think, I actually care very much about the workers in this country. However, in order to preserve a strong and healthy society, to keep Norway great, certain divisions need to be maintained. It's how I practice farming on my estate in Sien. You know how I take a keen interest in the breeding of cows? Yes. I keep both red and white cattle, whom I treat equally, showing the same amount of affection for each kind. But red and white are not, and will never be the same. Like industrialists and workers, we few who move the world and the many we provide employment for on our ships and in our factories. From nature's side we are made of different substances, and like oil and water, we can never mix. So when a red calf is born with white spots, or vice versa, I immediately have it killed. Sounds like we got company. Hello? Is anybody there? Oh, don't mind me. Well, well, well. The evening just got a lot more interesting. Look at that exquisite beauty. Isn't she a sight for sore eyes at this sausage fest? Women don't have access here. I guess one of the other fellows brought his wife by mistake. Or maybe she's someone's secretary? Don't just stand there and look stupid. Let's go over and introduce ourselves. Um, I did not like the sound of that cough. It could be the Spanish flu. Ay, ay, ay. Spanish fly? Diaphrodisiac? Naughty little firecracker. Nudge, nudge. No, no, no. The Spanish flu. The new sickness that just came to town. Oh, that thing. Your wimpishness never ceases to amaze me, Lindvig. We are at the Masonic Lodge for crying out loud, not some disease-infested worker's slum. That doesn't mean we're safe. Even the King of Spain has fallen ill. Spare me your fear-mongering. You're only trying to cover up the fact that you're terrified of talking to girls. But today is your lucky day. Watch and learn. You're about to witness a masterclass in the fine art of seduction. 
As you will soon find out, it's really a walk in the park for men like you and I. All you have to do is grab them by the... <coughs> grab them by the hand, kiss it gently, and let them know that you are powerful. Good evening, miss. I'm sure you recognize me. I am famous, but for the sake of etiquette, kindly allow me to introduce myself. I'm Gunnar Knudsen, Prime Minister. May I present Amborsius Lindvig, a very wealthy man. And you are? My name is not important. Gracefully timid. I love it. Very ladylike. In that case, I'll just call you Angel Face. <laughs> Angel face. Shut it. <clears throat> Please, ignore my immature friend. And do forgive us for boring you with our lengthy conversation about politics. You must find it excruciatingly dull. Not at all. I find it... enlightening. Did you now? Well, every vote counts. I trust I'll have you support in the forthcoming elections then. I'm not allowed to vote. Oh, yes you are. Yes you are, you sweet silly thing. The fairer sex have enjoyed suffrage in this country for half a decade already. Some young women are a bit anxious before their first time. But it's really nothing to be scared of, with the guidance of an experienced man. According to the Norwegian constitution, paragraph 52, section D, those who receive or have in the last year, before the election, received poorhouse benefits, are suspended from voting. You should know this, Mr. Knudsen. Twenty years ago, you and your party helped to pass the amendment. I'm afraid I'm a bit confused. Yes, poor people, beggars, tramps, the unemployed, are barred from taking part in the ruling of this land. And rightfully so. But I fail to see how this relates to you, Angel Face. Wait, don't go. Did I say something wrong? If I am to be an angel, I will be the angel of revenge, seeking the justice for all those who have scrubbed your floors, cooked your meals and washed your dirty laundry without ever receiving a decent wage or hearing a word of thanks. Picture my face when you choke on your cake. What? Hey, that's my coat! Oh, I'm sorry about that. I guess you're not used to sharing. Here, I don't need it anymore. Look, she's wearing a kitchen maid's uniform. Yes, a lovely servant. A real-life Cinderella crashing the fucking ball. Are you not excited? You deceiving little... Matahari, you'll regret this. I'll see to it that you are fired. That makes two of us. One of the other waiters saw me spitting in the Prime Minister's caramel pudding and ratted me out to the manager. All hell broke loose in the kitchen. What? So no. now we're both out of a job. But we kept our dignity. I know it sounds crazy, but suddenly I feel so free. It's almost like my mind has been... <laughs> ah, there she goes again. Spreading her disease. I'll have to burn my coats. 
It's probably contaminated. And I like to wash my mouth. <clears throat> ah, and rinse my moustache. Can you believe I was stupid enough to kiss her hand? Ah. Oh, I'm infected. All right. But by something far more contagious than tuberculosis or Spanish flu. An idea, once it has been planted, is more resilient than any bacteria and impossible to eradicate. Just bring on your police, your soldiers and your guns. There is no stopping us now. Here, that's our comrades marching on the street below. Let's join them. This is Rose Hammer and you are listening to Radio Rakel. And in a song we were just singing, it's about building a new future. Vi bygger landet. What happened to this area, this new era? And the question is maybe what will come next? In the Nordics, a model built on collective bargaining agreements between employers and unions was created in the 1930s. This means that there is no minimum wage prescribed by the law. It is instead negotiated by the parts of the agreement. So with this footnote, um, and in search of answers to our question, about what we are standing today, we met up with one of the leaders of last year's strike among the, among the Fodora couriers here in Oslo. I ha- my first question is, 
very basic. Um, and I wonder how you usually introduce yourself. Uh, well, my name is uh, Espen Nutner Landgraf. Uh, so th that's my name and I, uh, I work for uh, Fedora as a bicycle courier and also I work for Oslo Transport Workers Union as an like, organizer. And how did you come to work at Fedora? Uh, well, uh, I started working for Fedora about four, a little over four years ago uh, while I was uh, studying. Uh, writing my master thesis and it was supposed to be only a, like a summer job for a couple of months but uh, here I am more than four years later still working for Fedora so <laughs> and uh, we are currently standing at the uh, Jonstorget uh, where I know you were present during last year's strike yeah. uh, could you say something about what you were doing here uh, yeah L last year uh, we, uh, we uh, wanted to have a collective bargaining agreement with Fedora and they apparently did not want to have a collective agreement so we, we had to strike uh, for it. Uh, we had a five-week strike uh, and usually when you have a strike at a workplace you, uh, the strikers sit outside the workplace but in our case what's our workplace? It's the whole city basically. So. Uh, we decided to have Jungstorge as our base. We set up tents, we set up like a bike fixing stand where people could come by and have their bikes fixed. We made coffee and like waffles and pancakes and handed out and had so all sorts of different uh, activities uh, to both to create public awareness uh, about the strike, to gain support to get our message out and also for the strikers to have something constructive to do while striking because just sitting on your ass for <laughs> eight hours a day could be a bit boring so and also to have fun uh, so it was a I think it was a pretty good plan to conduct a strike in that way and it turned out successful in the end so yeah, and maybe would you say something more about um, what was the strike actually about? Yeah. Uh, so the main thing was to get a collective agreement because uh, a collective bargaining agreement is kind of the main tool for workers to gain uh, influence and rights and improve their pay, improve their uh, working conditions, in, like improve everything. Uh, that has to do with how it is to go to go to work, to be at work, to uh, perhaps the main thing is to gain some co-determination. So in the normal circumstances, you, if you go to work, you show up, you uh, do what the boss says, says and then you go home. But to have a, a decent uh, job, decent work environment, you should have some kind of influence yourself as a worker. That's what we think, at least, and that's what uh, like the Norwegian or Nordic working life is more or less based upon. So uh, we demanded a collective agreement, uh, which was uh, brand new because it didn't exist before. Uh, this was like a, a, a new trade, basically. So we had to construct our own uh, collective agreement, and we proposed that to Fedora and they said no, uh, we don't want a collective agreement or at least 
we don't want a collective agreement on those terms and so on. Uh, and we said, yeah, sure, we can negotiate. But then the negotiations broke down, in our opinion, because they didn't want to negotiate like properly. Uh, so then we had to strike. And it, the main thing was to have a collective agreement, again, to improve our rights, especially uh, to have a say in what goes on, uh, to advance our interests and also to increase uh, pay, of course, and all those like normal things. And during the strike, uh, I remember often seeing you biking around together in the city, all dressed in your uniforms. And a few times I even became a part of your crowd by con uh, coincidence uh, when I was biking somewhere. Um, where did this idea come from? Uh, that's a, a, an old tactic called a critical mass. It's uh, the, originally it's uh, to create awareness about uh, uh, bicycling in the city, basically to make it safe in traffic, to kind of uh, create awareness so that uh, uh, like infrastructure and traffic for um, bicycle users in the city is improved, and we kind of adopted that tactic to create awareness about our uh, our strike. Uh, it's a good way to move all over the city, so we're not just stationary at Jungstorge, because we want everyone to see us, basically, to create as much attention and awareness as possible. And also it came pretty naturally for us, since our job is to ride our bikes around the city, so it's like a so natural uh, to adopt that tactic for us. And it, also it was a lot of fun, basically. When we rode around the city, people, as you say, joined in. Uh, people were cheering, uh, waving out the windows and kind of uh, joining in on the, on the demonstration. Uh, in, in the beginning, people were, like the first couple of times we did it, people were like a bit uh, like uh, puzzled, didn't know exactly what's this, you know, uh, what's this parade. But then after a while, uh, after a couple of days, when we because we did it almost every day, and then people were like, oh, it's the Fedora riders and sharing and so on. So <laughs> it was uh, good fun and an effective tactic, I think. And uh, Fedora is a company that often associated with the so-called sharing or platform economy. And one of the characteristics Characteristics of this economy is that the communication between employer and employee and customer is largely done through a technological interfaces such as apps. And how do you experience this affecting your relationship to your employer as well as your customers? Yeah, uh, that was one of the main things that uh, made people want to organize in the beginning to uh, join the union and to work to improve their rights was the lack of communication or at least like uh, two-way communication between management and uh, employees because as you say uh, it's the communication is mostly based on what you see in the app and the app is like constructed very like uh, uh, there are like boundaries you can do this you can't do this you take orders you have no way to influence it back uh, and that creates uh, like a, a big divide and a kind of alienation from uh, both the your uh, employer who you need to have some kind of uh, 
two-way relationship with to be able to uh, propose your own ideas to influence things and so on. Uh, so e even though we kind of call it the platform economy or the gig economy and so on, it's there, there is still an employer there somewhere, but he might be hiding behind an app. And the, the point is not to really accept that because uh, when you have an employer, that person has certain responsibilities towards his uh, employees and so on. And you can't dodge that uh, responsibility by, by using an app, basically. So, and also, of course, the company or the employer is the one who designs the app, decides what the app is, uh, how it works, what basically the structure of the tools, uh, and which is our work tool as employees. So uh, we do have a power to influence how the app works by talking with the employer, right? So that's a necessary part of having some real influence um, uh, over the job. And has working as a food career affected your image of Oslo as a city? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I feel like uh, you 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 get to see uh, so much of the city and like the whole city by just going to work every day. You see uh, new streets because you uh, get to deliver to a new address, and soon, after a couple of years, you have basically seen every street in the city, and you have seen the city from all sides uh, at all different times. Uh, Lots of you kind of get a feeling for the life of the city, which is, I think, pretty unique. Uh, which is, you just kind of get a feeling of uh, <laughs> like uh, ownership or at least some close connection with the city. You feel like you you know this city in a way that other people who do who do not have that kind of experience or that kind of job can't achieve which is kind of uh, fun. Welcome back here to the studio. And we also have a... Hey, we're back. Um, we also have a guest with us. Yeah. Um. Hello. Alina. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was I, like... <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I was very deep into the story. So oh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Think I got a bit carried away and remembering. <laughs> following the program. Okay, I should yeah. just say that uh, this is Alina Lupu with us uh, on link from Amsterdam. Uh, and we, yeah, I think we should just jump straight into it. You have described yourself as worker, artist, union member, social media user, and prankster. <laughs> I think that's, a, that's an accurate description. It's also an accurate description of me, I would say, about a year ago, because some things have changed in the meantime, of course. And <laughs> <laughs> what have changed? Yeah. Um, I would say I'm less a worker this year, but I can like totally uh, think back of what it meant to be a worker uh, and also what it meant at the time to, I also was a food delivery courier. So what it meant to work for food delivery companies. 
Yeah, because I mean, uh, yeah, there's an obvious link between the last interview and you. You worked as a bicycle food courier, and uh, yeah. among other things, and you have done, you've dealt with that in your art. Uh, how have you done that? Yeah, so um, everything started when I finished my four years of training in fine arts in uh, in Amsterdam. So. Um, there was a certain need after I graduated to um, before and before I could establish myself as a as a fine artist on the Amsterdam scene to make a living. So um, the first go to thing that I could uh, think of and the first like really low entry point job that I could find was that of food delivery courier. Um, and so I signed up to to work for Deliveroo uh, in Amsterdam. At the time when I signed up, uh, I signed up with a contract. So it was a bit different than the conditions that exist now for Deliveroo. Um, so at the time it was a job which had a bit more benefits. I, I'm not sure it had a CAO, a, a collective labor agreement that was mentioned for the uh, in the previous speaker's uh, talk. Uh, but for sure we had a contract and we were employed. And this is not the case anymore. Well, things have changed. So I, 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 I held on to that job for a year. Um, and um, at a certain point in time, we we got news uh, that the company planned on changing its uh, its employment uh, model. So moving from uh, an employment contract, so something that you had still a bit of like leverage with as a worker to moving a uh, all the workforce to being independent contractors so everyone would be a freelancer they would uh, basically be in be responsible for more of their means of uh, of working um, and they also would have less benefits and they would be entirely flexible and responsible for yeah doing their taxes for uh, their own insurance for yeah the sick pay and everything else so they would like have a much bigger like weight on their back so uh after one year of holding on to this job uh i also started to strike against the company alongside several other um couriers in amsterdam and we had several strikes and this is why i was so into the story from before because i do remember going to the streets um and yeah uniting with other people and going to the the office of my so-called employer and uh, yeah holding banners and flags and having the union behind us etc etc um but unfortunately this wasn't resolved in the the company um yeah going with our demands the switch was made to individual contractors so everyone had to everyone who wanted to continue being a worker for Deliveroo uh, had to switch to uh, yeah, freelance employment. Oh, wow. Yeah. But <laughs> did you stay on with the company or you said you were, that was the point you were quitting? Yeah, that was the point in which, uh, well, basically after I think four or five strikes um, against the company, uh, that was the point in which many of us quit. Some stayed stayed forward but like stayed through with the company, but the majority of us quit and the new batch of workers came in, of course, because recruitment was almost almost like continuous. They were always taking new people on. Um, and I personally moved to Fudora. 
So my <laughs> so because I still needed to make a living and because my artistic practice wasn't yielding that much of a yeah of an income at the time, I moved to the next uh, company that still offered a contract. Uh, so Fudora was that at the time. Um, but in the next uh, even less than half a year, uh, they also gradually uh, discontinued their contracts in the Netherlands. <laughs> so it's like jumping from one ship that's sinking to the next. Uh, <laughs> because their arrangement was that they were trying to get an offer on the company um, in the in the Netherlands and they couldn't get that. So they tried to expand as much as possible and become an attractive company on the market and that didn't really help. Um, there was no strike. The company just folded. So yeah, that was quite a dramatic change. But in the past, uh, so I, I did the job of food delivery courier and I came back to it further on um, and I eventually um, went through all the employment possibilities in the Netherlands and these are so Deliveroo, Foodora, Uber Eats and Tausbezorgd, which I think is called, I forgot exactly what it's called, but it's, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the one that still exists and is very local and it's very um, still offering contracts. So it's, it's, it's a hybrid between platform, traditional platform economy, employment and yeah, what you would find uh, find as a contractor and a transport related yeah affiliated company but how did you bring this experience into your art practice or do you even see that division between well i i didn't really have a so let's say that when i when i started uh, so this job that i picked up as a food delivery career was out of necessity but uh, of course if i still wanted to make uh, a work i needed to figure out how to balance my time of working as a courier with um, yeah my time of producing as an artist and i could i also could not see the distinction between yeah the influences that i would get from being a courier and what i was yeah doing during my work so i just um it happened a bit in a let's say let's just say in a funny way like i was invited at a certain point to um to hold a speech at my former art, ac art academy and um, talk about what it means to be a young starting artist on the art market. Um, and my decision, because at the time I just recently became a food delivery courier, was to come to this meeting, to this presentation, dressed as a courier. So to have the outfit on, but without necessarily introducing the topic. So I just basically showed up yeah, in costume. And I let people read my my position on the art market through that. At the time, it was a bit different because, of course, now you see a lot of, of works that reference this position as a of a food delivery courier. But when I when I did this, yeah, statement comment on this position, there was no clear framework as to what it means to do the work or what this means in a larger context. So the reaction that I got from everyone was quite striking. I was, it was a bit, there was a bit of like, yeah, distancing themselves from me or like it's a bit like being looked at a bit funny. So then you take that and you think, okay, what can I do with this? What does it mean? What does it mean for me to, to be a worker? Is it relevant? 
for me to be an artist and a worker and i took that as a as a topic of uh yeah of study it's very yeah. interesting i wish we had time to talk more about it and like go deeper into like of the of your <laughs> work uh, um but it seems like time is running out actually of course um but i mean yeah, I'm, we are so happy to have had you here, and uh, yeah, we just wish you could uh, stay on for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> Time is always of the essence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so and, and yeah, thank you, Claire, for helping us out with this um, today. The technician. Our technician. Fantastic. How and could we do this without you? We could not. <laughs> And you've been listening to The Radical Flu by Rose Hammer. Thank you for listening. This is the rhythm of the night. The night. Oh, yeah.